VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. When I was a grad student in neuroscience, I really wanted to study the things that were the most cool, the cutting-edge tools, the interesting questions about the brain. And I found myself gravitating towards one particular technique that really wasn't available anywhere other than UCLA, where I was located. We were recording the activity of individual neurons in the human hippocampus. And I have to admit that when it comes to electrophysiology and that component of neuroscience, there weren't a lot of women in the field. There were just a couple of us in the lab. And if you looked at all the authors on the seminal papers, very few were female identifying. But there was one person who stood out, Wendy Suzuki. Her work was just amazing. It was incredibly rigorous. It was really interesting. It was really well-written. If her name was on a conference program, you knew that was one you wanted to go to. I really looked up to her and I saw her as an example that maybe women could actually thrive in that particular field. But then a few years ago, it seemed like her research program shifted direction. Instead of studying the details of neural activity in the human hippocampus or the primate hippocampus, she started asking questions about how exercise influences the brain. And it was such a drastic shift that I wondered what happened. And then across my desk came her latest book, Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion. And in it, she describes exactly what happened. How, at one turning point in her life, she decided to make a change, not only in her research program, but also in how she lives her life. She's a professor of neuroscience and psychology at New York University. And her TED Talk has more than 31 million views. She also wrote a book called Healthy Brain, Happy Life. Wendy Suzuki, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you about your new book, um, Good Anxiety. You probably started working on it well before the pandemic, but what uh, an amazing timing <laughs> as all of a sudden the market for your book has exploded, I imagine. It has. It has. I had no idea. I was actually worried that it was delayed and what's going to happen and but yeah, the timing ended up being perfect. 
So we are in a place where I think everybody has uh, had some close relationship with anxiety over the last couple of years, if not even before then. Um, so tell us a little bit about what anxiety is good for, because I think most of us just talk about it as something that we try to minimize and avoid and get rid of. But you suggest actually it's a powerful thing that can help us. Yes, yes. So that is a great question to start with. And let me just start with the simple definitions so we're all on the same page. So anxiety is that feeling of worry that is often initiated by situations of uncertainty. And I don't know any more uncertain situation than the one that we've all been living through collectively together for the last 19, 18 months. So we are in a period of high uncertainty, high anxiety. And I think the core of this book, the core kind of nugget of knowledge that I really want to share with your listeners is the idea that anxiety, while it's associated with negative feelings and uncomfortable feelings, at its core, it evolved in us over the last 2.5 million years to protect us. It is protective, just as our stress and threat-related response that underlies those uncomfortable feelings was evolved to do, that is protect us. So how come I don't feel protected by my anxiety is the big question. And the answer to that question, the simple answer is too much of anything, any good thing even is bad. Too much chocolate is bad. And so clearly we have too high a level of anxiety and it's lost a lot of its protective features and so the first step in the book, and in fact, the first part of the whole book is showing us and talking about techniques to decrease our levels of anxiety to that kind of optimum level that can help protect us. Um, think about the moment when you are practicing a talk or giving a public speech and, and there's a certain level of activation of energy that you need to give your best talk and over that and you start forgetting things and and you know things go awry but um think of that as your anxiety level and we want to get to that that particular stage of anxiety or level of anxiety that will optimize your performance that's what we're trying to get to and so you talk right from the beginning though about how anxiety can tip into disorder. And I think it's really important to talk a little bit about that. Like, when do we go from everyday anxiety to this is an anxiety now that requires treatment in a more formalized way? Yeah, that is a really great, important question. So anxiety lives on a spectrum. And so 20% before the pandemic, 20% of the population had clinical levels of anxiety. That is anxiety that, that should be treated by medical professional like anything else medical, a broken leg. That number has gone up since the pandemic. It's estimated it's gone up uh, an additional 30%. So uh, it started out with 40 million Americans. So 30% more have been diagnosed with, with um, anxiety. And how do you know the difference? I think the best way to think about it is that when your worry and anxiety becomes debilitating, uh, it prevents you from 
walking out the door from participating and engaging in your life, that is the moment where you really should start uh, seeking medical professional help. So one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you about this topic is because you are a pioneer, a real expert in our understanding of neuroplasticity in terms of, you know, how the brain changes over time with our experience and our behavior and so forth. And a lot of people have this notion that how we respond to anxiety is kind of hardwired in, you know, it's an overactive amygdala and there's not a lot you can do about it. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how we understand the relationship between our wiring of the brain over which we feel like we have no control and this relationship between good or healthy anxiety and the kind of anxiety that needs treatment. Yeah, that is a great question. And in fact, the reason why I'm so optimistic about everybody's ability to use the tools that I lay out in this book is because of my 25 plus years of studying brain plasticity. So again, let's start with the definition so everybody's on the same playing field. Brain plasticity is the brain's amazing ability to adapt to the outside environment. And um, there are two flavors of, of brain plasticity, positive brain plasticity, where you're giving your brain an environment that allows it to grow and change and adapt in a positive way. And there are also negative brain plasticity-like environments that do the opposite. And the most obvious one is a stress-filled environment that will increase your cortisol levels and really inhibit your prefrontal cortex that does not give you access to the part of the brain that's allowing you to make those good judgments, good decisions. So I am optimistic because I based all of my brain tips and um, toolboxes uh, for shifting your anxiety on my understanding of brain plasticity. So for example, one of the most direct ways that you can start to decrease those feelings of anxiety that come up is based on our understanding of the nervous system that is so basic. Every single neuroscience student learns about this, and that is activation of our rest and digest nervous system or the parasympathetic nervous system. That is the direct way that we have to counteract the stress responses that another part of our nervous system, the sympathetic part of our nervous system is activating. So how do I get more of that rest and digest that relaxation response? The best way to activate that consciously is simply by deep breathing. This is part of what the parasympathetic, the rest and digest part of your nervous system is doing automatically. But to kind of kick that into gear when you need it is deep breath, inhaling deeply, exhaling deeply. I I like to recommend a four-part breath, which is inhaling on a four count, holding at the top for a four count, exhaling on a four count and holding at the bottom for a four count. And it's not surprising that breath is one of the oldest forms of meditation. It is a calming thing that we can do. And it helps in all situations, even when you are in, sometimes when you're in the depths of an anxiety attack, this can really help you to calm your nervous system. So it's really 
turning in and looking at what we already know about neuroscience to ask what are all those elements that we could bring in to not only quell anxiety, but then take advantage of those brain activations that get activated with anxiety for good rather than for negative rumination. So one of the sort of simplistic ways to think about, and that I hear this talked about a lot in terms of our relationship with our emotions, is that you know we've got this lizard brain or this reptilian brain that hijacks, you know, our highly, you know, specialized human thinking and that, you know, leads us to behave in this way. And we need to learn to, you know, keep that beast in check to regulate it. Um, So I wonder if I could have your comments on, you know, this notion and, you know, where it's right, but also where where it goes wrong and what it actually means to regulate an emotion. Well, I think the concept of emotional regulation is one that's studied quite extensively in psychology. I think that is a really useful way to think about it. Uh, let me go back to the the imagery of the reptilian brain and, and hijacking. I mean, we do have a beautiful, even molecular level understanding of of what is happening in that situation, which is going back to this sympathetic or or fight or flight, that stress response that gets activated when we are faced with a threat or uncertainty in in anxiety. And you get uh, amygdala activation, as you mentioned, amygdala is is very active in these uh, kind of threatening situations. And you get release of a whole bunch of different neurotransmitters, not just uh, in hormones, not just the hormone cortisol, which is the, the most prototypical stress hormone, but you get high levels of noradrenaline and dopamine. And two high levels of those neurotransmitters or dopamine can be good at certain levels. If it gets too high, you end up inhibiting the functions of the prefrontal cortex. And that is when you lose your decision-making, focusing abilities, and uh, the, the stress response that the amygdala takes over, you tend to rely on uh, kind of reflexive or habitual kinds of responses that gets us uh, in this loop of just uh, uh, reflexive responses, unthinking reflexive responses that may not be the most thoughtful thing that you can do at the moment. That is the reality of what's happening in our brains. But then to step back for a moment and say, okay, well, what can I do so that I don't get to that level where my prefrontal cortex is so inundated with these different neurotransmitters that, that it's blocked? This is where simple breath work comes in. This is where movement can come in. So physical activity can strongly decrease your anxiety response. My favorite anecdote for this is a situation, a real life situation in one of my NYU classrooms. So this happened almost exactly one year ago today. It was August 2020, right before the strangest and most anxiety-ridden semester that many of our undergrads had ever experienced. And I was in Zoom, using Zoom, I was in front of a group of 30 NYU incoming freshmen. And I gave him a a little lecture on the effects of exercise on the brain, one of my specialties in my lab. And then instead of lecturing at them for 30 minutes, I had them run and go take a quick clinically relevant anxiety survey. 
And then we all stood up in a kind of surprise intervention. We all stood up together. I happened to be a certified exercise instructor, and we all worked out together for 10 minutes exactly, just to look at the effects of 10 minutes of moving our bodies together. Then they went back and took the anxiety questionnaire again. What I found was that before the exercise, these incoming freshmen were almost at the level of clinical anxiety, very high on the anxiety scale, just below clinically anxious. 10 minutes of movement decreased their anxiety score by 15 points, putting them in normal anxiety ranges. So this is what I talk about in the book, these these science-based ways to start to regulate your anxiety, either when it's already started or just to you know prepare your day, go out and, and do some exercise to get yourself into that good kind of uh, mental zone. And this will help you during uh, situations of high anxiety. And, you know, what you describe is, is a demonstration, but of course, it's also backed up with a lot of kind of, you know, well-controlled studies that demonstrate the same effect, you know, exactly. where you have, yeah. So we sort of talked about like kind of acute anxiety, acute stress, but I think a lot of us over the course of the pandemic have gone into something that is more a function of chronic stress. And, you know, it, it reminds me of those like famous pictures of dogs um, that after uh, being stressed multiple times exhibit learned helplessness, which is basically, you know, this, you know, where they just they just lie down and sort of take the beating because they know they, they have no power. And I think a lot of us sometimes feel that way when it comes to the pandemic or in our lives. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what's happening in the brain when we get to that kind of point and what we can do about it. Because there, I think, you know, it's hard to, to sort of motivate to do the box breathing or, you know, some of these other tools. Right, right. Let me start with the bad news and I'll end with the good news. So the bad news is that we know an enormous amount uh, about the deleterious effects of constant high levels of stress and anxiety that come with chronic high levels of cortisol, your stress hormone in your system. We know a lot about what it does to our body's physiology. Um, That stress response is increasing our heart rate. It is increasing our respiration rate. And generally, it is sending blood from our digestion and reproductive systems out to our muscles. Because Let's go back 2.5 million years ago when when this stress response evolved. The main reason why it evolved is that there were outside dangers. There is a lion coming at us. There's a bear coming at us. And so these systems were evolved to put us into action, to run away or to fight. That is why it's called the fight or flight response. So long-term activation of the system does things that are very easy to understand. It causes heart disease because your heart rate is is up, elevated uh, abnormally for too long. It causes digestive problems with the blood going away from your digestive system. Um, Think ulcers coming up. It also affects long-term your reproductive systems because again, blood rushing away from that. In your brain, there are two brain areas that are particularly susceptible to long-term stress and anxiety because of uh, the high levels of cortisol. And that is your hippocampus, critical for long-term memory that you know very well, as, as do I, and also your prefrontal cortex. There's cell death that happens in the hippocampus with long-term stress. So that is why we want to do something 
to get ourselves out of this chronic stress and anxiety situation. The way I approach it in the, in the book is starting with immediate. Everybody needs an immediate way to start getting their anxiety down, which is why it's great that we started with these box breathing approaches and, and movement. But the long-term approaches are uh, largely based on shifting of your mindset. The first shift of the mindset is what we've talked about before, that, that at its best, your anxiety is protective. So that's really important to, to start to realize. It's not something that my goal is to get rid of, you know, just kick it out the door because it is protective. My goal is to get it back to its protective level of activity or uh, place in your life. I'm never, we are never going to get away from those uncomfortable feelings. So let's use them to their best extent. And so this is where we start to talk about the gifts that come from anxiety and, and uh, approaches to use your anxiety in a different way. And I'll start with probably the most easy to understand and easy to implement one. And that is, what do you do with that what if list that starts to develop? We all have it. What happens when we're going back to school this September? We're going back to work in this new environment with new variants. And um, this one I talk about a lot because it hits me. This is one of my most common forms of anxiety. It's me right before I'm going to go to sleep and I'm drifting off. I'm looking forward to sleep and boom. What if I didn't answer that email and it's really, really important? What if I don't know how to answer the question that they're going to ask me on the next podcast? And everybody has that. And so the approach and mindset shift is to try and use that for good. So can you shift your what if list to a to-do list? So what has really helped me is, yes, those, those uh, concerns come up, but I just tell myself, that's okay. I'm going to do something about each one of those worries the next morning. So I don't have to worry about it now. And it helps resolve the anxiety because this stress and anxiety response was evolved for action. And so it puts an action end element to this uh, uh, stress response. And while it's not necessarily running away, it is an action. We are going to research this. We are going to ask the questions we want to, we need to ask to address each one of these what if concerns that come up. So this is one of the gifts that I talk about that comes from our anxiety, because if we didn't have that worry, that concern over a danger uh, and, and all these possibilities, we would just be sitting there complacent. It's like, oh, it's okay. So it is valuable, uh, but we need to use it in the appropriate way. I mean, I think that's such a great way to reframe anxiety and, you know, as, as a motivator, as something that will make sure that you take care of yourself in, in that way. And if you continue to ignore it, it'll continue to, you know, stick around and make you feel un uncomfortable and unpleasant and even lead to some of these, you know, bad long-term changes to your health. Exactly. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So there was a story that I wanted to share with you in particular because of your love of the hippocampus. And it's one of the tools in the Good Anxiety Toolbox that's based on hippocampal function. And the tool that I called it joy conditioning, and it's a direct tool to combat fear conditioning that is based in the amygdala, happens unconsciously. Everybody has had this happen. If something bad happens, uh, you get mugged on a street corner, then when you pass that street corner again, you have these fearful feelings because your your body has has encoded that special environment as possibly dangerous. Sometimes it's very hard to get rid of those fear conditioning feelings. Well, that's terrible. We, we're gathering and we're collecting all these fear conditioning situations. We need something to counteract that. And my counteraction for fear conditioning is what I call joy conditioning. And it's not automatic, but it's based on how we know the hippocampus works. So here's how it works. Go back into your life's memory bank and think about one of the most joyful, funny, juicy memories that you have. You have many to choose from. It would be best if you choose one that has an olfactory component. Why? Because we know that olfactory stimulation can be particularly evocative of a, a, a memory because the olfactory sense has a direct connection to the hippocampus and it's always been very, very powerful at bringing back and recalling particular hippocampal-based memories, those, those memories for the facts and events of your life. So let me tell you the one, the memory that I use for my joy conditioning that I use very regularly in my life. So my memory was of a particularly um, memorable yoga class that I went to. And so I did really well in this yoga class. I was really flexible and I was doing up dog and down dog and I flipped my dog and I was all, I, I was just really proud of myself. And then I laid down to my favorite pose in all of yoga, the one that I do the best, which is Shavasana. So I'm in Shavasana and I'm feeling really proud of myself. And, and I, that is the memory that I recall. But then there's an extra special element because the teacher comes by and she waves her hand that has um, lavender essence on it under my nose. My eyes are closed. She gives me the most luscious five-second neck massage that I ever had because I was feeling so good. And it's like, ah, oh, that just feels so good. And so when I want that feeling of, I'm just feeling so proud of myself, I get an extra bonus. 
I simply wave a little lavender essence under my nose and I re-evoke that memory. And sometimes you need that. And why not use your own store bank of your memories to shift your mood and re-regulate your mood? And Again, you don't have to use the olfactory thing, but it it is helpful. We know olfactory sense is very, very evocative. So that is joy conditioning. And I thought you would appreciate that particular tool from the toolbox from your background. In the book, you detail a kind of turning point in your life when you were about 40, where you kind of took charge of um, the things that that were causing you a lot of anxiety, and you made some pretty big shifts in your life. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So first, I will admit to you and all of your listeners that I have been a lifelong anxiety denier. It's like a, no, I don't have anxiety. I am the, you know, energetic, happy one all the time. And so actually writing this book was was a big wake-up call to all the different areas of anxiety in my life that I was kind of hiding both from myself and the outside world. And it came to a head um, when I was about to turn 40. I was in a very stressful, stressful situation. I was trying to earn tenure at NYU. It's stressful for anybody who has gone through that. And I took the, uh, at the moment, the best strategy that I thought existed, which is I am just going to do nothing but work. I'm going to work so hard that there's no way that I could not get tenure. And so I stopped going to yoga class. I stopped um, cooking. I just ate, ate takeout and went to and from my lab and did as much work as I can. Not surprisingly, I gained 25 pounds. And so, you know, I'm walking past this picture window on the way to work and it's like, wow, I'm a lot whiter than I used to be. And um, it it really hit me that I, I was not just fatter, 25 pounds heavier, but I was miserable. What happens when I don't, when I, I, I stop seeing friends and only work all the time? I become miserable and uh, stress was high, anxiety was high. And um, I had a wake up call when, when I went on a river rafting trip by myself because I had no friends at the time because I was only working. And I found myself the weakest person on this trip in my 30s. That was not a good realization. And so I went to the gym. I said, I, this can't happen. I went to the gym. I cut out a lot of the kind of 90% gluten diet that I was giving myself. And I really started to feel good even after the first workout that I had at the gym. It's like, oh, I, I so needed this. And also the gym brought back that social element just because I was doing these workouts with all these strangers at first. And I started to realize how much I had missed that social interaction. And so I did this act and I found myself relieving a lot of the anxiety that I had been denying, but was welling up in myself. And that was kind of my first big foray into using my own brain plasticity and neuroscience uh, knowledge to counteract my own anxiety. I mean, the interesting thing is that a lot of um, research points to the fact that aerobic exercise in particular is really great at turning on sort of neuroplasticity in the brain for a number of reasons. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which became my new research direction after that. I was studying the electrophysiology of the hippocampus, which also fascinating 
topic. Uh, and I really thought I would never, that that's where I would end my career is, is continuing in that. But I got so fascinated with the effects of physical activity on your brain, both immediate, medium term and long term, that not only woke me up to my own personal kinds of anxiety, forms of anxiety, but it made me think, gee, may- maybe I want to study something else. And and I did. So, yeah. And so one of the kind of tools you offer people as they're trying to work through their own anxiety is the activating mindset. We've touched on that a little bit already, but I wonder if you could just give us some more detail on what you mean by the activating mindset and how people can apply it. Yeah. So um, the activating or activist mindset that I talk, to, talk about in the book is really a positive mindset shift. I think to boil it down, it is opening up your observational skills to say, you know, there's more than one way to think about myself in this situation. And sometimes that could be very hard because we have uh, very fixed ways of, you know, that person comes in the room and you say, oh God, this is going to be a bad meeting, right? And there's nothing's going to change that. Well, you know, the activist mindset says, well, Maybe you can learn something, learn something from your past interactions and explore it in a different way, explore different ways of interacting with this anxiety provoking person that we all have in our lives and be creative and interactive with it. And, and when it comes down to it, it's really approaching your life and your anxieties as an experiment. What are the different ways that I can explore this? Okay, that last way, that was terrible. I had a lot of anxiety there. What are different things that I can do and approaches or questions I could ask or different ways that I could I could structure my life's interactions to change my anxiety levels, including removing them or minimizing them. That's part of it. So it's being activists about the way that you approach all the situations that cause us anxiety. And we are all experts at identifying those in our lives. Let's become experts at manipulating them and and kind of exploring them in different ways. And that is what an activist mindset is. So one of the my my you know areas of research that I've, I've become more and more interested in recently is, is one that you also write a little bit about in in the book, which is this relationship between being creative and being anxious. And you, you know you talk about this one point in your graduate work where you know you were highly anxious and and then you you know you 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 took an Excel manual on a trip home and and that sort of helped you find a creative solution. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about um, the relationship between anxiety and creativity um, because it's kind of a murky one. Yeah, it is a murky one. And the book that kind of made that clear to me is a book called Spark, How Creativity Works by Julie Burstein, who um, is a creativity expert. And um, she also has a great TED Talk on this. She reminds us that one of the biggest inspirations or the biggest promoters of creativity in our lives is adversity. And she calls it the tragic gap. What is that gap between what you want to create or the world that you want to have and what you have right now? And that causes an enormous amount of anxiety in, in our lives. 
But those that explore it and with all of the difficult emotions that come with it can come up with the things that end up being the most creative things that they've they've uh, um, uh, produced in their entire life. So adversity becomes a venue for being creative. And in fact, she talks to some of the most creative people in, in, in our country, in our, in our society. And many of them say that their creativity came from adversity, uh, adversity that caused a lot of anxiety. So that, that to me is so inspiring. It's like, not that I'm going to get rid of all the uncomfortable feelings that come with adversity, but what if it is just my own personal life's wake up call to become more creative. And so that is how I've changed my mindset, my activist mindset. This just is terrible. I hate this. I just want to get rid of it, which is so easy. I've absolutely done that so many times in my life to how could we solve this in a useful way? Can I, can I spend some of that energy instead of worrying and, and just telling myself how, how terrible this is and complaining to my friends about how terrible it is, could I think about ways to get around it, really creative ways to get around it? And so it really came together again, reading about all these creative people in that book, um, Spark How Creativity Works, and realizing that's what inspired that story that I told in the book about I created a whole way to unfold cortical areas in the brain that you as a former neuroscientist uh, would would appreciate. I um, use those. I use the really, <laughs> unfolding yeah. tools. Yeah. Unfolding tools. So I had no, you know, I had no software. I had to do it myself. And it's like, wait a second, it's just like an Excel spreadsheet. And so it to this day, I am like most proud of that realization that I made in my parents' living room reading the Excel spreadsheet manual. So yeah, I mean, I just, I, I, yeah, I would have had no idea that that's how these tools got created because I remember, you know, using them and thinking, wow, what a genius solution. And, and anyway, so that was real delightful for me personally to read that story. Um, I want to end with what you call the superpower. Um, and this is, this is compassion. And I think that, you know, I, I, a lot of us need to have more compassion in our lives as we come out of the pandemic, not only for other people, but also for ourselves. And I wonder if you could tell us what compassion is and why it's a superpower. This is a great one to end on. I talk about the gifts that come from anxiety. The gifts are superpowers, and this is one of my favorites. So one of the gifts of your own anxiety is the gift of compassion or empathy. And so how does that work? So I'm going to use an example from my own history of anxiety. And one of my longest term anxieties, even though people say, I don't believe it, it's true, is I've had social anxiety all of my life. And it was really, really severe when I was young and I was very, very shy and all through high school, you know, wanted to be in with the cool kids and have all the cool friends and was always instead the wallflower and sit instead. And even my academic career, uh, all through college, I always had anxiety asking questions in class. I really wanted to participate, but it, it was it was very difficult for me. Now, of course, I've, I've gotten over that because I became a teacher, I became a speaker, but I still have all of that knowledge from what that felt like to have social anxiety. And so 
how did that become a superpower of empathy for me? Well, now in my role as teacher, I love all the Hermione Grangers in my classroom that are, you know, very enthusiastically wanting to tell me the answer, raising their hands. But I've always been very aware that there are many, many more students out there that do want to interact. They want to tell me what they know, but are too shy or or uncomfortable doing that. So as a teacher, and I realized I was doing this unconsciously, I always made sure that I spent time, I come to class 15 minutes early, I hang out um, in the hallway, trying to engage students more informally. I stay after class so that anybody who wants to can engage with me in a much more informal way because I remember what that was like. And I so wanted to, you know, talk to the professor, the teacher, and it was really hard in class when I had to raise my hand and, and, you know, maybe be wrong in front of the whole class. And so that is my own personal superpower and gift of empathy that came directly from my anxiety. And everybody has that. Everybody has that knowledge of what that feels like. And you can then turn that outwardly and help somebody else that you know is having that problem because you were there. And I think if everybody did that today, it would really, it could really change the world. So good one to end on. Well, I want to remind our listeners that Wendy Suzuki's book, Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion is now available at booksellers everywhere. Wendy, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rayhalla, Michael Galgul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale LeMaster, and Charles Blyle. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.